Thank you, Brother Brian, for doing a wonderful job leading us in those songs this morning. And thank you once again to all of you who are here this morning for the purpose of worshiping God. It's been a great day of worship. I want to thank all of the members of this congregation and any guests we have here. You are our honored guest. So happy that you're here. You're among friends. We hope you'll study with us for the next few minutes. In fact, go ahead and get out your Bible, please, and make your way to the Gospel of Luke. I want to invite you in your Bible to Luke, the seventh chapter. I want to set up everything we're going to talk about in this portion of our worship by reading from Luke chapter 7, starting with verse number 36. In Luke chapter 7 and in verse number 36, the Bible says, Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he, referring to Jesus, entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner, and when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept weeping or wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Verse 39 says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. After being home all summer, and with the fall season fast approaching, very soon I, I will start traveling again. I'm actually going to be preaching at a few gospel meetings in the months of October and November. And one of the things that is attached with gospel meetings is hospitality. It is invitations. It's invitations to come into the homes of various Christians so you can eat and talk and get to know each other better. In fact, the eating part of a gospel meeting is something that a preacher's got to be careful with. Preacher got to be careful with eating on a gospel meeting. I mean, with all the food being supplied by the brethren, if a preacher is not careful, once that meeting is over, he's going to need to get a new wardrobe. He's going to have to buy him a bunch of new suits. He's going to be a little heavier, and his wife might be able to recognize him when he gets back home. You see, a lot of people usually like to feed a preacher a lot on a gospel meeting, and that desire is nothing new. It's not anything unique. It's not something that we can't find in the New Testament being recorded over and over and over again. In fact, it's something that Jesus experienced all the time. You see, throughout the New Testament, throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we find Jesus eating with a variety of different people. We find him eating with Mary and Martha and, and Lazarus, people who were his friends. We find him eating meals with tax collectors and, and sinners. We find him eating with the apostles and at times multiplying a, a few fish and a few loaves of bread to feed thousands and thousands of people. We even find him at times in the gospel eating with Pharisees. He eats with Pharisees. He even eats meals with some people who belong to a religious sect that for the most part hated him and despised him and wanted to destroy him. In fact, Luke, Luke alone records three different occasions 
when a Pharisee invited Jesus into his home for a meal and every single time he accepted that. Every single time Jesus accepted the invitation extended to him by a Pharisee. In fact, one of those instances is found right here in the verses we just read together. Going back to the verses we just read together, I want you to notice how in this text, in this text we find Jesus being extended an invitation by a Pharisee. A Pharisee. A Pharisee actually invites Jesus into his home for a meal, and this Pharisee's name, according to verse number 43, is Simon. His name is Simon. Simon invites Jesus over for supper. And why does Simon do this? I mean, does he do this because, because he's got evil intentions? I mean, like many uh, of the Pharisees at this time, is Simon trying to trap Jesus? Is he trying to trick Jesus? Is he trying to set Jesus up to be destroyed? We're not told. We're not told there in the text. We're not told what Simon's intentions were by inviting Jesus over for supper, but what we are told is they're not alone. They're not the only ones at this supper. Instead, there are some other people who are there. In fact, there is a woman there who is specifically referred to as a sinner. There's a woman who's called a sinner in the home of Simon the Pharisee, and this woman is often confused with some other women in the Bible. For example, she's often confused with Mary. Mary, that is the Mary who is the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Remember that Mary also in John chapter 12 anointed Jesus with a very expensive bottle of perfume. This is not, this woman in Luke chapter 7 is not her. This is not the Mary who anoints Jesus' body toward the end of his life in the home of Simon the leper. This is not the Mary who is the sister of Martha and Lazarus, and neither is this Mary Magdalene. This is not Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is not even mentioned in Luke's gospel until the next chapter in Luke chapter 8 and verse number 2. This is not Mary, the sister of, sister of Martha and Lazarus. And this is not Mary Magdalene. Instead, this is an anonymous woman. This is a woman that, that whose name we're, we're just not told. She may have even been a woman who has some interaction with Jesus prior to what we find here in Luke chapter 7. She is someone who is so moved by the presence of Jesus that she goes into the house of a Pharisee. She has the courage to go into the home of Simon, to go up to the table of Jesus and touch him. She touches Jesus. She serves Jesus. She sheds tears on his feet and begins wiping those tears with her hair. She also fills the room with the fragrance of a very expensive bottle of perfume that she will use to anoint the body of Jesus. I submit to you that everything this woman is doing here, it's radical. 
I mean, this is radical stuff here. This is extremely radical. I mean, it's extremely radical for her to, to go into the house of Simon, to go into the house of a Pharisee and just go up to Jesus and, and touch him. It's radical for her to be crying on his feet and to be kissing his feet. It's radical for her to be wiping the, her tears off of his feet with her hair and then fill up Simon's house with an odor from a perfume that he may not be able to get rid of for months. This is all radical stuff. This woman is doing here, and I want you to do something this morning. I want you to imagine that we were there. Uh, imagine that we were there eating with Jesus. Imagine that, that you were there. I want to suggest that if you were privileged, to, to witness this scene with your own eyes, gonna, there would be some, some critical things you would be challenged to do. There are some critical things that we all would be challenged to do. And the first thing is we would be challenged to avoid a self-righteous spirit. We'll be challenged to avoid a self-righteous spirit. Let me ask you something. Why is this woman here? I mean, I mean why is this woman in Simon the Pharisee's house, who invited her? How in the world did she end up there? How in the world did she come through the front door? Well, in order for us to understand how this woman gets access to Jesus in the home of Simon, we need to understand the customs of the time. We need to understand the customs. We need to understand that the customs among first century Jews are very different, were very different than the customs we have today. You see, unlike in our time today, in these times among the Jews, homes were much more open. They were much more open. Unlike today, when you might get shot if you happen to just go in somebody's house while they're having dinner in these times when a community of people became aware that two Jewish rabbis were having dinner, they were allowed to go to that dinner. They were allowed to just to just show up at the host house and sit along the walls. And just listen. Just listen to the two rabbis. L listen to them. Have a conversation. Listen to them talk. Listen to them debate. Listen to their views on various spiritual subjects. You see, at this time, it is not weird for this woman to be in the house of Simon. But what is weird, at least in Simon's mind, is what she does to Jesus. It's what she does when she shows up. It's the fact that she cries on Jesus and touches Jesus, and he actually allows her to do that stuff. Look back at verse number 39 again. Going back to verse number 39, notice how after witnessing this woman wet the feet of Jesus with her tears and wipe those tears with her very long hair and also anoint his body with an expensive bottle of perfume, Simon's not impressed. Simon's not impressed with that. Simon doesn't have sympathy. He doesn't have compassion. He doesn't tell her to go grab a plate and pull up a chair. Instead, he's disturbed. He's disgusted by this. He's especially disgusted by the fact that Jesus 
lets her touch him. You see, Simon criticizes Jesus for letting this woman even put her hands on him. And it is interesting how this criticism that Simon makes here on this occasion is not something he does publicly. It's not something that he shouts and he screams about. It's not something that he calls a big scene over in, in the room. Instead, the scripture says he makes this criticism in his heart. He makes this criticism in his mind. The scripture says that he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. This man is thinking these things to himself. And then in verse 40, Jesus responds to that. You know what that's showing us? Jesus can read hearts. Jesus is reading hearts on this occasion. He's reading this man's mind. And how would you like to go to dinner with somebody who could do that? How would you like to, to sit at a table with somebody who can read your mind? Who knows exactly what you're thinking? Who knows exactly what's going on in your heart? And if there's some evil in your heart, he might call you out on it. Jesus is reading the heart of Simon on this occasion and what he finds there is not good. It's not good. You see, when he looks into the heart of Simon on this occasion, you know what he finds? He finds pride. He finds arrogance. He finds a man who is self-righteous and believes he is self-sufficient and who also believes that he, because he knows some Bible and can quote some scripture and because he's a religious teacher, that meant that he is better than this woman who's given attention to Jesus. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of Luke chapter 18. We'll come back to Luke chapter 7. Do, but you, do you remember this parable Jesus told in Luke chapter 18 in verse number 9? In Luke chapter 18 and in verse number 9, Jesus told this parable. It says, and he also told this parable to, to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you. I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes all I get. Verse 13 says, but the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Do these two guys remind you of anybody? They should. They should remind you of some folks. They should remind you of the people we're studying in Luke chapter 7. They represent those people. That woman who's called a sinner, but she's given attention to Jesus. She's this tax collector. 
She's this man or this woman, rather, who finds favor with God like this man here, like this tax collector, because she has humility. She humbles herself before the Lord. She leaves justified. But the Pharisee in the parable is just like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 7. He's just like Simon. He's just like Simon the Pharisee. You see, like the Pharisee in this parable, when Simon the Pharisee saw this woman, he saw someone who he believed was beneath him. He, he saw someone who he believed that he was better than and, and superior to. He saw someone that he believed was a lost cause and did not deserve a second chance. That's what Simon saw when he looked at that woman. But when Jesus looked at her, he saw something different. He saw something totally different. He didn't see what Simon saw and said he saw this woman for who she truly was. He, he saw a woman who had been made in the image of God and who was loved for loved by God and cared for by God. He saw one who needed to be saved and that he wanted to save and that he was willing to save. He saw someone who needed the gift of God's grace. That's what he saw. And he also saw that with Zacchaeus. Do you remember in Luke 19? Turn over to Luke chapter 19. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus is being criticized at the beginning of that chapter for spending time with a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was viewed as an outcast in his society. He was a Jew, but he was not just a tax collector. He was a chief tax collector, and the Jews look down on tax collectors, especially Jewish tax collectors. They view them as traitors to their people. And so Jesus is going to go spend time in the home of Zacchaeus, and a lot of people want to criticize the Lord for that. But after Zacchaeus demonstrates some repentance in verse number 8, in Luke 19 and verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is the son of Abraham, for the son of man has come to seek. And to save the lost. Notice how Jesus, while people in that culture and society looked down on Zacchaeus, Jesus saw him for who he truly was. Jesus saw him as a person who needed God's grace and who deserved another or who needed another chance. That's what Jesus saw when he looked at Zacchaeus. The question is, what about us? What about us? When you go back to Luke chapter 7 and you, you look at Jesus and you contrast him with Simon, who are we more like? Who, who are we more like? Are we right now more like Jesus or are we more like Simon? Like Simon, are we self-righteous? Are we arrogant? Do we constantly compare ourselves to other people in an effort to lift ourselves up and prop ourselves up? Do we find ourselves around other people and thinking to ourselves, well, I'm not as bad as those people, so I'm good. I I'm okay. God has to accept me because I haven't done the kind of stuff they have done. I'm not a homosexual. I'm not a transgender person. I've never had an abortion. I'm not an alcoholic. I've never drank alcohol before in my life. I'm not promiscuous. 
I don't sleep around with a bunch of people. I'm not a murderer. I'm not in an unlawful marriage. I'm not part of some denominational church. I, I'm better than those people. Is that how we think? Do we think like Simon? When we are around and see people who are outside of Christ or like Jesus, when we see those people, do we see them for who they truly are? Do we see them as people who are loved by Jesus and they're welcomed by Jesus? Do we see them as people who have eternal souls and they need, they need what Jesus offers? Do we see them as people who are one day going to die and they're going to stand before the Lord in judgment and if they don't obey the gospel and receive the grace of God, it's not going to be good for them. You see, this story right here in Luke chapter 7, it challenges us. It challenges us. This story that is exclusively found in Luke's gospel challenges us to avoid a self-righteous spirit and to see every person's need for the gift of salvation found in Jesus Christ. This story challenges us to avoid a self-righteous Spirit, but not only does it challenge us in that way, it also challenges us to be humbled by God's forgiveness. It challenges us to be grateful for God's forgiveness. Go back to Luke chapter 7 again, and after Jesus is able to see what this man is thinking, in Luke chapter 7, in verse number 40, in verse number 40, the text goes on to say, And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were un unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered him and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her. Your sins have been forgiven. So I want you to notice how after Jesus reads the wicked things going on in Simon's heart, he then tells Simon a story. He tells him a parable. He tells him a parable about something that we're pretty familiar with in our culture today. It's a parable about debt. He tells a parable about debt. He says there, there are two men who are debtors. They're debtors. One owes a money lender 500 denarii, and the other owes 50 denarii. Now, what's a denarii? What's a denarius? Well, many of you know what a denarii is, right? You know what a denarius is. You know that in New Testament times, a denarii or a denarius was a working man's daily wage. That means that the man who owes 50 denarii 
He owes almost two months of salary to his lender, while the man who owes 500 denarii, well, he owes about a year and a half worth of salary. He owes a whole lot more money than the other guy. But what does verse number 42 say? Even though the guy with 500 denarii owed a whole lot more money than the guy with 50 denarii, verse number 42 says, neither one of them were able to repay. Do you see that? Both of them were unable to pay back that, that debt. Do you know who those two guys represent? Those two guys represent the woman. They represent Simon the Pharisee. They represent me. They represent you. They represent every person on the faces of this earth who has sinned against the living God. Will you go in your Bible, please, to the book of Romans, to Romans chapter 3. As the Apostle Paul in Romans, the third chapter, talks about one of the main things that every person has in common, one of the main things that those of us of an accountable age have in common is this. In Romans 3 and verse 9, in Romans 3 and verse 9, the Apostle Paul says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks or both Jews and Gentiles are all all under sin. And then look at verse 23. You know verse 23 where the Bible says, For all. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. One of the main things we all have in common, despite the color of our skin, our economic status, our education, where we're from, how we grew up, one of the things we all got in common is we're sinners. We've sinned against God. Those of us who know right from wrong, good from evil, accountable age is how we say it, we have sinned against God. We've all done that. So what do we deserve? Is it to go to heaven? Do we deserve to, to be in heaven with God if we make it to heaven? Or are we going to be able to go to God and say, ha, I worked my way here. Yes, I deserve to be here, God. Is that how it works? Go in your Bible to chapter 6, look at verse 23. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Romans 6, 23 says, for the wages. See, that's what you earn there, a wage. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God. So you can't earn a free gift. It's grace. You don't deserve God's gift. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice how the Bible says that because we're sinners, what we deserve is death. We deserve death. Now, when the Bible talks about death there, it's not talking about physical death. Look, everybody's going to physically die even these innocent, even innocent babies from time to time, even innocent children die, unfortunately, and then horrible ways from time to time on this planet. That happens all the time, every single day. That's not talking about physical death there. That's talking about spiritual death. That's talking about eternal separation from God, being separated from God forever, being lost in hell forever. My friends, none of us can escape that that destiny on our own. None of us on our own can pay that debt off. It doesn't matter if we've been raised in the church. 
It doesn't matter if we haven't missed a church service in 40 or 50 years. It doesn't matter how many people we brought to Christ or how many Bible classes we've taught or sermons that we've preached or even how many people that we have served. It doesn't even matter if we just have a handful of sins that we've committed in our lives. If we are sinners, if we have committed just one sin, verse 42 describes us. It describes us. We can't pay the debt. We, we, we can't pay the debt of sin. If the debt for sin is going to be paid in full, then it's going to be because of God's grace. It's going to be because of God's forgiveness, God's love, God's compassion. In the first half of this verse, Jesus speaks of two men who were unable to pay their debt. But then in the second part, he asks a question. Do you see the question he asked? After telling us about two men who were unable, both unable to repay their debt, he then says that after they were forgiven by the moneylender, which one of them loved more? He asked Simon, which one of those guys who was forgiven do you think loved more? And Simon says, I suppose the one who he forgave more. And Jesus said, you said right. That's the case. And then he tells him to do something that he didn't want to do. He said, look at that woman. Look at that woman over there. Look at that woman you're disgusted by. Look at that woman you think you're better than. Look at that woman who's an outcast and at the bottom of the barrel in society. Jesus said, look at that woman and realize she loves me more. She loves me more than you do. She's more thankful for God's forgiveness than you are, and that is proven by her humility. It's proven by her faith. It's proven by the service she is rendering on this occasion. I, wanna, I want you to understand that Jesus is not overlooking this woman's sin. He's not sweeping her sin under the rug. He's not making excuses for her sin. He doesn't say, well, you know what? She's a sinner, and so that's not really a big deal. No, Jesus says she has many sins. She has many transgressions. She has a lot of things she's done that's contrary to the will of God, but at some point he had forgiven her and she was grateful. She was truly grateful. She was so grateful that she's going out of her way to serve Jesus on this occasion. That is what Simon is telling. That is what Jesus is telling Simon to see. And the question is, who are we more like? Who are we more like in this story? Whose attitude do you possess? Whose attitude do I possess? If we have experienced God's forgiveness, are we more like the woman? Or are we more like Simon? I mean, like Simon, do we walk around believing that we're so good and, and we're so perfect and we are entitled to God's forgiveness? Do we neglect to, to serve the Lord with zeal and passion and enthusiasm and with maximum effort because we have taken God's forgiveness for granted? Because maybe we've grown up in the church? 
or we've been in the church for a very long time, do we fail to understand that we need God's grace and God's forgiveness and God's mercy just as much as all these sinners walking down the street? Is our mindset like Simon when it comes to this? Or like the forgiven woman, do we understand how much of a big deal it is to be forgiven by God? Does the forgiveness of God move us to love God and to serve God and to worship God and praise him with zeal and passion and enthusiasm? Does it move us to live for him every single day? Does it move us to be godly in our marriages and in our, in our parenting? Does it move us to make choices that God can be proud of? Choices that will glorify God. Choices that will show people that we are true followers of Jesus Christ. Does the forgiveness of God move us to do what Paul says he did for him in Romans 1? Remember that scripture reading? Remember in Romans chapter 1 in verse 14, Paul says that one of the main things that motivated him to do evangelism, to spread the gospel, is because he felt he was a debtor. He felt he was under obligation. He owed it to God to share the gospel with other people. Does that describe us? Like Paul, because God's forgiveness is so big. Because it's bigger than the sun and the moon and the stars. Because it's bigger than the Grand Canyon. Because it's bigger than Elon Musk or Warren Buffett's bank account and anything that we could possibly imagine. The forgiveness of God should compel us to serve. It should compel us to love God. It should compel us to love God more because he forgave us all of a debt that none of us could pay on our own. Eating with Jesus would challenge us to avoid self-righteousness, to be humbled by God's forgiveness. But then third and finally, I want to close with this. It also would challenge us to see the truth about his identity. The truth about the Lord's identity. Go back to Luke 7 one more time. And I just want to finish that chapter very quickly. In verse number 49, after Jesus tells this parable and after Jesus says that this woman was more grateful for God's forgiveness than Simon was. In verse 49, it says those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So notice how after Jesus tells this parable here, there is a question posed by the crowd of people in the audience. They're thinking about a question. And the question is, who is this guy? Who is this man? Who is this man who even forgives sins? This question here that they ask is actually the question that is posed throughout the gospel. For example, look at verse number 19 of this same chapter. In Luke chapter 7 and verse number 19, after John the Baptist is imprisoned, some of his disciples come to Jesus and they say to him, Luke chapter 7 and verse number 19, are you the expected one? Or do we look for someone else? Are you the Messiah? Who are you, Jesus? Who are you? 
Look at Mark chapter 4. In Mark chapter 4, in verse number 41, in Mark chapter 4, in verse 41, after Jesus calms a terrible storm with just a few words, in Mark chapter 4, in verse number 41, it says, They, the apostles, became very much afraid, and they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Who is this guy? Who is this man who can even control the weather? And then look at one more place, Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, as Jesus is sharing a private moment with his apostles, in Matthew 16 in verse number 13, verse 13 says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Who are people, what are people saying about me? What's the word on the street? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? That's the question. That's the question. That is the big question in the gospel. Who is Jesus? Who is this man who's doing all these amazing things? That's what people want to know. And in Luke 7, the verse we've been studying, that question is answered emphatically. It is answered emphatically. In the home of Simon, we see exactly who Jesus is. We see that Jesus is someone who has authority. He has authority. He has authority unlike anybody else to ever walk on this earth. He has authority to not only calm terrible storms and cast demons out of people and heal lepers and give sight to the blind and walk on water and even raise the dead, but he also has the authority to forgive sins. He has the authority to forgive every sin that every person has ever committed and give them a clean spiritual slate and save their souls through their faith in him. Jesus has authority to do every one of those things, and the reason why is because he's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. He's the Lord, the Savior. While he was on this earth, he was, in fact, God in the flesh. That's who Jesus is, and I believe that's something we need to be reminded of from time to time because I don't know if you've noticed or not, but we're currently living in a culture where for a lot of people, they don't have a clue of who Jesus is. They're totally confused about him. They're totally confused about his identity. Some people believe that he was, that he was merely a prophet. Some people believe that, that he was just a good moral teacher who said a, a few good things. And then others believe that he's just another famous person in world history. So many people are totally confused about the identity of Jesus. But in chapters like this, we learn the truth. We learn exactly who Jesus is. We learn that Jesus is God because he's able to do something. That only God can do, and that's forgive sins. Jesus can forgive sins. He can forgive every person's sin. And the question is, do you need that? Do you need his forgiveness this morning? If you need that, then I hope you will understand something as we wrap up this lesson. I hope you will understand that in addition to accepting this woman who had many sins, 
He'll also accept you. He'll accept you. It doesn't matter what your sins may be. It doesn't matter how many sins you've committed in your life. If you humble yourself before him and determine to do his will, he will forgive you. And so at this time, we extend an invitation to anyone who needs the forgiveness of Jesus. If you need to accept his grace for the first time through faith and repentance and baptism for remission of sins, or if you are a Christian and you know you have not been living a good Christian life, you haven't been, you haven't been a very good Christian, if you need to repent and beg the Lord to forgive you, he will forgive you right here and right now. Just come to the front. Let's stand. Let's sing together. <laughs>